Thank you all for, for submitting your questions. Many good questions. We can't use all of them. No offense if your question is not asked. They were all good questions. Except the question about what the Wi-Fi password was. Could we have could we have one of you pray before we begin? Okay. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to answer questions. Father, you know that each one of us here is human and we need your wisdom to answer according to your word. So I pray that we would give answers that are biblical and that will guide the minds of all those who are honestly seeking to know what the Bible says. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I know usually it's easiest and then it gets harder. I don't know that that'll be the case tonight. We'll do one easy one. Do we have to be baptized in order to go to heaven? If it's all right, I'll jump in for an easy question. It was, it was actually to you. Oh. Um, well, that's a trick question because everyone who can be baptized should be baptized. Jesus said, unless you're born of the water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's in John chapter 3, Mark chapter 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Um, first thing Peter says after they say, what must we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Last thing Jesus said before he ascends to heaven, go therefore teach and baptize. So baptism is very important. But some people obviously will be in heaven that were not baptized. There are a lot of people in the whole Old Testament dispensation. Uh, so, but it's a command that tells, uh, it's as important to a Christian as a wedding is to a marriage. It's the turning point where you publicly de declare Christ. Obviously, the thief on the cross well, we're closing tonight talking about him, was not baptized and he'll be in heaven. I think Jesus was baptized, not for his own sin, but for those who couldn't be, they get credit for his baptism. Okay. All right. I know God has called me into ministry, and after years of serving faithfully, I have fallen back into a sin I had overcome in the past. Have I been disqualified from ministry? And I realize that what they've fallen back into is not specified. I answered the last question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as I'm listening to the direct question, the person was in ministry, and then at some point, an old sin uh, became a reality in their lives once again, 
and they're now asking the question, can I still minister? Can I, can I still go back into ministry? Is that correct? Correct. All right. Well, I mean, David is an example in Scripture. He was one who God had called, used mightily uh, to do his will and to speak his words, and he fell into sin. And he did receive ramifications for that, but yet God was still able to work through him to be his manservant. David had true repentance. We read that in Psalms 51, which is key. And that is what I would say to that minister because it also kind of makes it seem like ministers don't sin or ministers at some point, you know, we just stop sinning per se. And while we don't want to make an endorsement for sin at all, we know that by the grace of God, we don't have to fall back into it. But if we sin, the Bible is very clear that we confess our sins God is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I'm cleansed from all unrighteousness, then I am righteous. God can re reinstate me through the merits of his son, and I can now go forward and do his work. I'm answering based on what I'm hearing. I know that there are sensitive situations. Um, you know, there are certain sins that people have fallen into, uh, you know, examples of a pastor molesting a child. Can he go back into being a pastor? You know, once we start getting into those sensitive, very specific things, then there may be a very different answer. But when we're dealing just generally with that, that's how I would answer it. Anyone else have anything to add? Good. Okay. All right. This next question, I think it came up because of the session here in the tent. Um, I'll give a little background. So uh, we were talking about uh, some of the arguments for our stances in the Bible. And some of our stances in the Bible come from Leviticus. And we as Christians, it appears to others that are not Christian that, that we pick and choose what we want to stand for, uh, particularly in Leviticus. So the question is, how do you determine whether a law from Leviticus applies to us today or not? I know some are ceremonial laws, but why is it that we, for example, don't get tattoos? Uh, and the reference here is Leviticus 19.28. But it doesn't matter how our how we shave our beards, Leviticus 19.27. The, um, there, there are two verses in Leviticus. Well, one may not be Leviticus, and someone will have to help me look it up. But when it says uh, you're not to make any cuttings in your flesh, and neither shall you mar the corners of your beard, people have said that means you're not supposed to shave. You read further on in the Bible, it says you're not supposed to mar the corners of your beard for the dead. And they had a practice back then that when you were in mourning, the pagans would mutilate themselves. You read about what the prophets of Baal did. They cut themselves, or, and they would, sometimes they cut off a finger, they would uh, shave off part of their beard so they would look like they were just all disheveled in mourning. And uh, God said, you're holy, you're not supposed to do that. That had nothing to do with whether you should grow a beard or shave. You'll notice that when Joseph comes to meet before the Pharaoh and God fills him with the spirit to interpret the dream, he shaves. And so I looked right at a guy with a beard when I said that. Sorry, there's nothing, I didn't mean anything by that. You just were right there. <laughs> so uh, when Mephibosheth was in mourning, you remember when David fled because of Absalom, he said, I have not trimmed my beard because I've been in mourning. So they used to trim their beards, they used to shave their beards and uh, that verse really is no command about never shaving or growing a beard. Okay, so before any more, any more answers, that, that was just an example 
And so I'm glad that we addressed it, but at the same time, I think that how do we determine uh, which is which? So meaning, are we picking and choosing? So the, the thing about the beard was, was an example. For example, the beard, but how do, we, how do we determine if we are picking and choosing? That was a good example, though. It was, and I appreciate the answer. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in. Anybody, I'll just keep talking because no one's saying anything. But I, can I ask, how many questions do we have so we can pace ourselves? We're, we're pacing ourselves. I okay. got you. All right. I just... <laughs> we could go quick or slow. Um, well, I believe man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, including Leviticus. Um, and the things in Leviticus that would not be specifically applicable right now is one, if you're not living under theocracy, there are certain laws about a person caught in adultery or breaking the Sabbath, you stone them. Um, and the other things would be those related to the ceremony, which is no longer circumcision in the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. But all the other social laws, much of the, um, the civil laws in the world today come from the laws of Moses, and they're very good. You know, um, one of the things we're told in the book Education, page 189, is when we study the Bible, we should study the scripture as a whole, which again uh, goes back to the point that Pastor Doug just shared with us. You got to look at the whole of scripture and don't build a religion, a practice, or anything off of just a passage here or there. Um, the Apostle Paul, as an example, there was a time, of course, God's people would wear veils and they would cover themselves and cover their heads, and of course, especially. Uh, the women would do it in a certain way and the hair was the glory and a covering. But when you read in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 16, when Paul talked about this, he would then say in verse 16, but if any man seemed to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So there would be other verses that you would use to help clarify a practice that may have been done in times of old, but this custom is no longer applicable. You know, again, le leading back to the point made earlier. So Study the scripture as a whole when we look at some of these statements that are made in relation to civil laws, sanitary laws, and other type of laws in the Bible. And then when we look at the scripture as a whole, we can see what is still applicable today versus what may not have been applicable because it was under a theocracy, pertained to various customs, etc. And I believe that will help. But it is going to require deep study. You're going to have to go into the word to dissect what is applicable today versus what is not. Excellent. Next question. Is the fact that we are different from Christ, does it prevent us from emulating his life and having victory over sin as he did? So, first of all, Scripture makes it clear that we can have the mind of Christ. So if we can have the mind of Christ... I don't see a, di a big difference there. Um, now, you know, that's getting into the whole issue of the nature of Christ, which there's others on here that can talk about that as well. But um, Scripture talks about how he was that holy thing conceived of the Holy Spirit. And it's true that Scripture says we're um, shaped in iniquity conceived in our mother's womb. However, when we become born again, and we become partakers of the divine nature. Romans 8, 3, and 4 makes it very clear for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. 
God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. You walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, what's clear from that statement is that the righteousness of the law may be fulfilled in us, not outside of us, not simply a legal declaration. It's fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The other thing is, is that people say, well, it says the likeness of sinful flesh, so that shows that Jesus is different. But the emphasis that Paul is placing there is on the sameness and the similarity, not the difference. Mm -hmm. Did you want to touch on legal declaration? Since there may be individuals not oh, familiar oh, legal with legal declaration. So some people claim that the righteousness of the law won't be fulfilled in me. Christ will just declare me to be legally righteous, even though my heart hasn't changed. So, yet Scripture says, when I abide in Christ, His righteousness is fulfilled in me. Not only does He say that I'm righteous, His righteousness is lived out through me. And that connects to our theme verse, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So scripture doesn't paint a picture that because Jesus is different, therefore I can't be like him. Scripture paints a picture that Jesus came down to this earth to pick me up so that I could be like him. Amen. Amen. That's the picture of scripture that I see. I don't see anywhere in scripture that says you can't be like Jesus. There's so many verses that say, now to him that is able to keep you from falling, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He gives us as an example that, First Peter 2, he gives us as an example that we should follow him and walk after his steps. So I thank God for those promises because I don't like to be like Norman McNulty unconverted. I would prefer Jesus to live out his life through me. Thank you. Anyone else want to add anything? Okay. Next question. If someone is born a hermaphrodite, how does that work in respect to sexual orientation or sexual identity? And if you would explain what that is as well. Can you repeat the question? Yes. If someone is born a hermaphrodite, how does that work in respect to the person's sexual identity? First and foremost, we need to understand what is a hermaphrodite. It's basically someone who is born with both sexes. And it's been known that um, parents have had to choose which one to preserve at the birth of the child. And later on, it's discovered that they chose the wrong one. So it's an intricate situation. Um, and we can't really, it's, a, it's very intricate in that when the child does grow up and identifies, I mean, biblically, this is the thing. Biblically, our, our sex parts is how we identify. The world has, the world has done it differently. Um, where sexual, we need to understand sexual identity um, versus sexual preference, and this is what the world has redefined. Biblically, our sexual makeup determines our sexual preference. That's biblical. Um, in the world, they've compartmentalized 
those aspects of, of a human being. I don't know if uh, Lisa or Daniel have anything to add to this, but as far as the hermaphrodite situation, it's a very intricate situation, and it's something um, that needs a lot of prayer and is a very difficult situation for parents to, to decide for the child. Anyone else want to add anything? Um, Jesus made a very definite statement. And when something is done outside of this, we can call it not the act of sin, but we can look at it as an effect of sin. Um, here's an example, Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, the Bible says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, now here it goes, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? From the beginning of time, God's plan was to make male and female. When someone is born outside of this plan, again, it is not because of their act of sin, but it is the effect of sin in the world. And it's important to help them understand that, that this is something that is definitely an effect of sin in our world, even though it was not a sin that they committed. So again, as our sister stated, it is something that has to be dealt with uh, delicately, that we can say, how does God help an individual who has dual genitalia to, you know, say, well, then what am I? You know, how am I to define myself? And I think the first thing that we would want to do is help them to understand that they are a child of God, is, is to at least give them that identity in Christ while we're trying to seek and understand through all the intricate uh, steps and understanding chromosomes, et cetera, and this, that, and the other, and, and exactly what are you from the standpoint of gender. But at least we can help them understand if any man be in Christ, he can be a new creature, and the old things can be passed away, and try to affirm them in that reality while we try to help figure out the uniqueness of their situation as it relates to gender identity. Thank you. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have tonight. Oh, we can keep going. Yes, we can keep going. Sometimes I see this, and I, th I think that means stop. But people are just waving. Next question. In a home setting, if an intruder breaks into our home with the intent of murder, mayhem, or otherwise, is it wrong for a Christian to use force or bear arms to save their life or their family's life? I'll, I don't have a problem. Um, you don't want to try that at the bachelor pad. <laughs> so Jesus makes a statement. He says, if you're going to break into a strong man's house, you need to first bind the strong man. It was understood that people would protect their families. I think that you'll find that principle. The idea of turning the other cheek doesn't mean you watch people be victimized. And, um, you know, if, uh, it doesn't mean, or this is not an endorsement of someone's wondering 
to go, you know, stockpile arms in your house. But um, I think God expects Christians to be practical. And if, you know, someone's going to harm your family, do all you can to protect them. Anyone else like to add anything? Okay. Next question. How do I find a balance of being a loving and submissive wife if my husband is not submitting to God? Repeat it. (laughs) How do I find a balance of being a loving and submissive wife if my husband is not submitting to God? Okay, um, dealt with this question quite a bit uh, because sometimes, you know, when you travel and speak different places, people will bring up this. I remember being in Australia and I finished doing a meeting there and as I'm shaking everybody's hand as they were leaving, you know, you're just expecting everybody to say what they normally say. Praise the Lord. God is good. And this lady comes and she shakes my hand and I smile at her. God bless you, sister. And she says, I'm getting ready to leave my husband and I want you to tell me why I shouldn't. And I'm thinking to myself, I did not expect to hear that at the door. Um, I told her, I said, well, I tell you what. I said, if I answer it now, all I would tell you is what I think according to my opinion. And that's not what you want. I said, so do me a favor. Don't make a decision for 24 hours. Let me talk to the Lord. And then she said, okay, you have 24 hours. (laughs) And, you know, I ended up praying, and, and that's the first time we did a sermon called The Sealing Work and Its Order. And, uh, you know, that's, that's on a lot of places on the internet. But uh, the good news was is that at the end of it, she and her husband did not break up. They ended up coming back together, and the Lord just blessed, blessed, blessed. One thing I would highly recommend, and I'm assuming right now that this is a Seventh-day Adventist that would be asking this question, I want to encourage you to read chapter 57 of the book Adventist Home. If you have access to that, chapter 57 of the book Adventist Home, um, it's a chapter called Attitude Toward an Unbelieving Companion. And it, I mean, I have literally given this to so many Seventh-day Adventist sisters to read who were literally at the point of saying, I'm just out, I can't take this anymore. And I'm thankful that 100% of those that I've had the privilege of talking with After they've read it, they said, I have seen what God has required. Thank you. And and the Lord has really helped them. So, you know, we have the story of Abigail and and, and Nabal. Nabal was referred to as a fool. Um, You know, really bad guy. But Abigail was a very faithful wife, nevertheless. And, And she even functioned as an intercessor on behalf of him. When David the destroyer was coming to get him, she saw this man who deserved death, and she was still willing to intercess and intervene to say, you know, Please don't do this, etc. And uh, you know, we see Abigail as a godly woman who was apparently with a very ungodly man. But what we don't see is her leaving him and abandoning him. Unfortunately, you know, he did die. But we don't see them just getting up and taking off because he's an unbelieving, uncooperative husband. You know. So again, I I would highly recommend Chapter Fifty Seven Adventist Home Attitude Toward an Unbelieving Companion. Really, really good godly, practical counsel for these type of situations. 
And even if you're not in those types of situations, in case you are in the situation. Next question. This is, this is actually one that we've dealt with before, um, but I think that it can be, I think that we can answer fairly quickly. What do you mean by country living? How far out of the city How far out of the city must you be? Does it need to be a secret place and completely off the grid? So, I live in the country, and I live an hour and a half from Nashville, Tennessee, which is a pretty decent-sized city. And, you know, it's good to have a game plan for what we as Seventh-day Adventists know is coming on the world. So, for example, the Jews who followed the Council of Christ, that when the Roman armies surrounded the city of Jerusalem, that was the time to leave Jerusalem. And they didn't rationalize and say, well, if we flee the city, the Roman army is going to arrest us and we'll be put in prison. They followed the, the council and they left at that time. Now, some of them could have left sooner and wouldn't have even had to flee under that situation. Similar with, similarly with country living, we're told that when the Sunday law comes, that's the time to leave the large cities, moving out to the smaller towns and into the country, preparatory to fleeing to the mountains. So if you're going to flee to a cave, like Pastor Doug's <laughs> lived in, now is not the time to do that, because we have a work to do to, to take to the people of this world. Um, and we work the cities from outpost centers or so forth. Now, it's not a sin to live in the city even now, but your last chance to get out is the Sunday law. If you have an opportunity to leave sooner, it's always better. Now, I'll be honest, you know, I moved away from Loma Linda five and a half years ago. I was in Trinidad for two years, and when the time came to leave there, I had an opportunity to come back to Loma Linda, and we made a decision as a family that country living at that, at this point in our life was a better decision. So we have a, you know, we live on 20 acres and have a garden and, and a berry patch and all of those things. And if you can take steps now to be out of the city before the final crisis comes, that's always going to be better than making a run for it at the end. Um, if you can have a game plan and have a place out in the mountains that's a nice, you know, secure secret location, Great, but at the end of the day, remember you're relying on the protection of God. In Maranatha, I think it's either September 19 or September 24, Ellen White actually tells us that angels of God will guide the faithful people to hiding places in the mountains where they'll meet up with other believers. Um, so God will take care of us. So we can do our part. Make sure you leave when, when the sign comes to leave. Follow the counsel God has given, but ultimately we'll rely on God's protection. I'd like to add that, as I understand, Sister White says in the book Country Living, that country living isn't about escaping persecution. Country living is about character development and preparing for persecution. I guess um, in a distance of how far um, we've been asked, and um, we were thinking about that and going off the grid, and we actually made that plan like 10 years ago. and. Um, you know, it's not easy. Everybody thinks it's easy, but I mean, I was really scared, <laughs> to be honest. 
for like the first year, um, I was so scared, but I didn't tell my wife I was scared, because I didn't want her to know that I was scared to move into the country. <laughs> but um, we made that plunge, and actually, it's a lot of hard work, and it takes time. It takes time to sell your property in a city. It takes time to find the right place, and then to learn how to, you know, we, we bought a place off the grid. And so this, it's a whole process. And Ellen talks about also not being in a place where you're not easily harassed by your neighbors. So I guess you're far enough from your neighbors where you don't have them like living next door like in, in the suburbs. And also there's going to come a time where you said you're going to want to leave the cities, but you would not be able to. And so you're going to make sure that you're not waiting till the last minute till things happen, and then you make the decision and not realizing that it's, it's a long process to get to, the, to where you're at. And so... Um, and then God does things like what he did to us, and we were living off the grid for 10 years. And um, two months ago, God had us to sell that property, and we're moving back into, like, the suburbs <laughs> for now, anyway. But, I mean, God does things like that that we never expected, and that's why he has us right now. And we're just kind of like Norman was saying, we just kind of listen to and follow God's guidance at this point in time. Um, one of the things that helped me and my wife, when we left the city, got our country retreat, is we decided to hush all voices. We didn't want to hear anybody else and their opinions because we were listening to ministries that they gave some things that could make country living very burdensome. They were very much like, you know, the same way the Pharisees were with the Sabbath. They just would add so much and make it very, you know, and again, because I know this will be an audio verse, somebody might hear it and say, oh, he's talking about me. But the goal... <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing that. What I'm talking about is the concept. When we tell somebody you have to have a minimum of this number of acreage so you can have this much wooded trees so you can have enough wood to burn uh, for, until Jesus comes, etc. And then you got people who will start saying, man, so I need to get probably at least 20 acres. And then now you're looking for all these 20-acre properties when there could have been a perfectly well 10-acre property that could have gotten everything done. So the first thing we did, I would recommend you do it, is we took the book Country Living. We read it cover to cover, and we wrote down, underline, asterisk, we put everything there that defined what a country property was, what country living is, because the message is country living, not country location. You know, some people are just happy to have a country location while they bring the city into the country. So it's country living, it's, it's a lifestyle. Um, how far? You want to make sure it's not so far from the city that you can't minister in the city. Uh, you have to be practical. Somebody used to say a gas tank's worth of distance. I'm like, I drive a Ford F-150, and that thing can hold 600 miles. So are you saying that I have to have a whole gas tank? i got to be 600 miles. You know what I'm saying? It's not logical. So again, hush the voices. Go back to inspiration and look at what God says. There should... Enoch went into the cities, but the prophet of God says he always brought people back to his country home. So that means, obviously, it's not for hiding. And it's not, obviously, so far out that you can't practically bring things in. Now, let me say this last point on this. There is a statement, um, you read it in the Country Living, and this goes back to the quotation. It's the last page in the book, Country Living, where it's from volume five, and she says, as the siege of Jerusalem, so shall it be with the... Uh, you know, with the Sunday law crisis and so on. I have heard, you know, the idea of waiting until the Sunday law and then seeking to move, and I've had some challenges with that as I would read back. One of the best things I've learned in reading the writings of Ellen White is read dates. Read the dates when she said it. She said, the time is coming 
when God is going to call families, etc., out of the cities. That was in 1885. 1900 comes, she says, the time has come to get your families out of the city. That's a very definite statement. And then 1903, you get your families out of the cities as fast as possible. So now there's this urgency behind it. Well, what happened between 1885 and 1903? It's interesting because it's very similar to the siege of Jerusalem. We know that the siege of Jerusalem had two. 8066, Cestius, 8070, Titus. 8066, Cestius came in, miraculously, great controversy says, pulled out. God's people saw the signal, said, hey, that's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15. Let's get out of here. And they left. So it is, not one Christian died in the siege. A.D. 70, Titus came, and when Titus came, that's when it got pretty bad. So when I look at 1885, the time is coming, 1900, the time has come, what happened in between then? 1888, Blair Bill. The 1888 Blair Bill is exactly when there was an, an attempt to pass a federal Sunday law in the United States of America. A.T. Jones and another Seventh-day Baptist were instrumental in going to uh, you know, Congress or what have you, to, to kind of put it at bay that this shouldn't happen. And thank God it didn't happen. So we saw our country try to pass a Sunday law as far back as 1888, which would make it logical to me that 1900, maybe that's why the time has now come. So my concern is, please don't make a mistake of waiting for Cestius when he already came and Titus is on his way. So I would say let's just be as careful as possible, listen to the voice of God, study very carefully, and if the Lord opens the door for you to leave, go ahead and leave, but leave for the right reasons. As my sister stated, you know, it is, it's for character development. It's to allow people to see what Christianity is really like in the home front because you know we are who we are at home. And when people can see Christ in the home, that's a very powerful witness. So, you know, there's much to be said about country living, but those are some of those principles that I see there. Anything else? I apologize. I grossly misgaged that. <laughs> Final question. Final. Does the, and this will take some explanation as well. Does the lunar Sabbath theory have any merit? Does the lunar Sabbath theory have any merit? Well, I'm, I'm not an expert on the subject. Um, I was surprised how it took off and how intrigued people got. And basically what the theory is saying is that the Sabbath may not be on Saturday, what we think of as the seventh day of the week, but really something's been missed. And the Sabbath is supposed to be governed by the moon and it could fall in the middle of the week, which would uh, kind of change your schedule. Um, <laughs> And there's a whole theology that's built around that, but there's some very clear statements. One where Ellen White says, as you prepare for the Sabbath on Friday. Well, that kind of seals it. Those kind of statements mean that she always understood that it was going to be the seventh day of the week, what we call Saturday. And there's probably others that can add to that. Oh, by the way, my friend Steve Wolberg wrote a little book on it. Um, and I think it was Steve wrote something on the Lunar Sabbath. Perfect. We'll read the book. <laughs> All right, thank you all for participating. Thank you for asking the questions.
I really hope that we'll have more Q&A later on in the weekend. You're all dismissed. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.